I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today's a brand new day, and it's yours. Welcome to the True Performance Show by Ziegler. Every positive pursuit in life, every progression of personal development, change is fueled by one thing, inspiration. It's the drive and the hunger that propels every good endeavor. Without it, we merely have a dream, but never actually move. With it, we can actually overcome insurmountable odds to achieve our desires, convictions, and calling. In this show, we come together to drill down into what really makes success tick and how we can apply it to our unique personal and work lives. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and right now, we're going to inspire your true performance. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin, and this is Ziegler's True Performance Show, episode 414. In today's show, I am interviewing Steve Smith, author of the book Inside Job, Doing the Work Within the Work. Steve has worked with legions of high-level business people, megachurch pastors, people who have achieved massive success, but from it had significant personal crashing and burning. And a big question that is the umbrella over this, and we actually lead off the show with uh, to a degree, is can we achieve great success in our work? Can we achieve those things that we really would like to do, but do it healthfully, or do we just want to need to abandon them uh, for our health, which uh, it does not sound attractive to me, of course. So that is a big piece of this show. How do we go about doing success and doing it well? So folks, we just uh, wrapped the show. It was, it went long because it was so rich in all truth. Uh, this is going to be, uh, for me, you'll hear it. It was like a personal counseling session. This is tremendous, 
tremendous information. Uh, I'm going to ask you to strap yourself in, listen to this one in entirety. I feel like there's some of the things we got into at the ending point of the show or the latter parts of the show that were the richest part of it by far. Uh, so if you don't know Steve, he has a seminar degree. He's pastored churches in Kentucky and North Carolina and the Netherlands. You'll hear about some of that and his rise to the top there and what led him to the focal point that we talk about in this show. But uh, with Steve as a speaker, a spiritual director, an author and companion, he offers soul care and spiritual direction through individual group sessions. Uh, his published resources, resources such as this new book, Inside Job, uh, he's married to Gwen and has four adult sons, three daughters-in-law. He lives up here in the mountains of Colorado in the same town that I do. He's a guy that I get to do life with to a great degree and uh, powerful. How amazing to have somebody like this in my life, in my town, uh, that is the world needs to hear. You guys need to hear this. He's an amazing guy. He loves life. He lives it largely. He loves loving people. So this, uh, again, incredibly, incredibly profound show. I'm going to listen to it with my other business partner. I'm going to listen to it this weekend, I think, with my wife. We need this message desperately. Uh, you can find Steve. His retreat center we talk about is pottersin.com, P-O-T-T-E-R-S, inn.com it's a retreat center you can actually go to i was there almost all day yesterday on a retreat with some staff uh you can see the book and get uh sign up for a newsletter you can get he's got a workbook that goes along with it but it's my inside job.org.org my inside job.org all right so today we are just going to dive into the interview i'm going to queue it up i just i'm i'm recording this intro right after completing it so this is it's hot off the presses folks enjoy brother what a gift to have you on Ziggler's True Performance Show. I get to interview some of the world's most amazing and influential people and get to know them somewhat personally in the process. Seldom do I get to bring this audience someone I already know. Uh, though I'm sure I will learn something new today. But thanks so much for being with us today. I'm delighted. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. Well, I'm going to dive in to the book, Inside Job, and the dangers of success that you talk about. But give us the, the, the cliff notes of your own story that led you to not just this book, but in 2000, founding Potter's Inn and, and significantly devoting your life to this up here in the Rocky Mountains. I mean, that's not writing a book is a big accomplishment, but doing what you did in establishing a physical retreat is uh, it's a big deal. It's a big devotion. Give us a synopsis of what led you to that point. Well, I'm I'm one of those poster child people that um, the book really describes of somebody that was climbing the ladder of success, but never really looking at which wall my ladder was leaning against. So when I got to the top, to the zenith of my own career, uh, my life began to implode. My marriage began to implode. My fathering began to implode. I had four children under 10. I became a workaholic. Uh, I was probably working 80 or 90 hours a week. I never had a day off. And the deal about my work is that my work was in ministry. I was a pastor, and I was a rising pastor of a growing, exploding megachurch in North Carolina, uh, which now has probably 8,000 members. Uh, but at the time I was there, it was not 8,000. It was growing to become what it was. 
and I was morphing to become a machine. And my wife looked at me one day and said, I don't want to be married to a machine. I don't want our children to be fathered by a machine. I want you to reinstate your humanity because you have become a driven machine. And so we imploded. And to recover my life, uh, I was like that man that Mark talks about in the gospel when Jesus was in a home and it was so crowded, they had to cut a hole in the ceiling and lowering him, lower the sick man to the feet of Jesus. And I had four friends that lowered me really to a place I had never been. And that was, they said, you've got to get help. You are out of control. And we want you to go um, to a monastery and to a Catholic monastery. And I was a Southern Baptist. So those were in the days that Southern Baptist guys just didn't mess around with Catholics. But I was so desperate. And a man named Dallas Willard, who uh, is probably the most influential man in my life, was gathering 12 sick people like me, messed up leaders, and invited them to a monastery in Southern California. And I spent a month there. And I kind of went in one way and came out another way. And it was a true time of transformation. It was like a time I had to shed old snake skins, my old ways of thinking about life, about work, about marriage, about God, about how do I do life. And so I went in one way and came out another way. I called my wife from the airport as I was flying back to North Carolina and I said, everything's changed. And she said, we'll see. And uh, I went back and I resigned the mega church. I quit. And we started our life over. And out of that experience was birthed uh, what we're doing right now. We moved to Colorado in 2000 to start the work of Potter's Inn. And we chose that word, Potter's Inn, because it's the metaphor of the clay and the potter. And I had messed up. My clay had flown off the wheel. Like so many leaders today, they're busy doing their work. They're busy doing their life. But They're not aware of the mess they're slinging around, the mess they're slinging around with their spouses or with their children. And uh, so we call it an inn, a place of transformation. So now leaders from all over the world, we've had leaders from 70 countries in the world come to Potter's Inn and do their work within the work, what we're talking about today, Kevin. So uh, it's interesting to me if we have so many people in the audience who are uh, self-employed, pursuing different things, looking for passions, looking for meaningful work. So you got, so I'm going to take us into a doctor's analogy uh, since one of our dearest, closest friend uh, is our, our common, common denominator here is a uh, doc. You got sick. You found healing through uh, some perspective resources, methodologies that, uh, you know, that the book is about that Potter's in is about. And instead of just taking those and applying them to your life, you decided to become a doctor in that field. I mean, that's a pretty big deal to have such an experiential thing and the experience in and of itself and the healing of that now becomes, uh, uh you're a doctor of that medicine. Yeah, I, I really do think I'm like a physician of the soul. I'm not the only one doing this kind of work. But I love working with hard-driving, type A, fifth-gear, fast-moving, addicted personalities. I can relate to them. I call those kind of people. And I think the Bible has a story of one called the rich young ruler. Mm -hmm. And 
we live in a world where there are a whole lot, a plethora of rich young rulers, and that's people that are having success. They're gaining a lot, but they're not yet quite informed of what they're losing by all they're gaining. And that's what we really help people to do is take an inner look at the inside of your heart. It's the story, Kevin, that Jesus told when he said, you can gain the whole world, but in your gaining, you can also lose your soul. And that's exactly what happened to me. I lost my soul, even though my soul was working in the church. And that's the biggest conundrum of them all, of to be engaged in ministry and to lose your soul. But Dallas told me something in that monastery when he said that busyness is the only sin that the North American church, North American Christians celebrate. We just love busy people. We validate busy people. We elevate and we promote busy people. But what is the price of busyness to the human heart, the human marriage, the human father, the human mother? There's a high cost that we're paying. Okay, well, that's where I want to dig in um, because lots of questions around that. You know, I have my own journey that you've been a part of. Uh, to a degree, and there's there's a lot to grapple with here. So the back cover of the book itself starts off with this intro. Effective leaders work very hard to succeed, but often at the cost of their own souls. Just as you said, they have to keep themselves emotionally and spiritually healthy to survive success, to keep their humanity intact. And you mentioned also giving focus to the life-giving qualities of building character rather than the life-draining values of power, fame, fortune and position. So I'll start off coming from that with the big question and get it on the table and uh, right off, right off, right, right out of the, out of the gun here, the question aspiring people like myself and our true performance audience have is, can you then strive for massive success and achieve it and maintain your soul? Or are you saying we need to let go of the pursuit of power, fame, fortune, and position? I don't think you have to let go of power, fame, fortune, and position, but you've got to learn to navigate it because it becomes a dangerous cocktail that people are drinking. Power, fame, money, square footage, all the toys, it becomes a cocktail that is intoxicating us. And we are living an intoxicated life. Our families are intoxicating. We were running intoxicating businesses amping everybody up on their adrenaline without ever understanding what am I going to lose by drinking this cocktail this way. Okay. Well, that's a perfect segue in here. And if you will uh, humor me for a minute here, I'm going to read out of your, out of your book. Uh, It's page 13, right off the bat. It's the writing of JB Phillips. Uh, So I'm going to read a a piece and then ask you about it because it really gets in it. Just just what you said, an intoxicating cocktail. So you said that you wrote J.B. Phillips was a successful pastor, prolific author in the mid 20th century. He was a colleague and friend of C.S. Lewis's. And it was Lewis who personally endorsed Phillips translation of the Bible into everyday language for modern readers. His books sold into the millions and are still popular today. Phillips' legendary success established him as a leading voice in the work of the church all around the world. But in Phillips' autobiography, The Price of Success, he personally laments the great cost of his worldly success. He writes, and this goes right to just what you just said, Steve. 
He writes, I was in a state of some excitement through 1955. My work was intrinsically exciting. My health was excellent. My future prospects were rosier than my wildest dreams could suggest. Applause, honor, appreciation met me everywhere I went. I was well aware of the dangers of sudden wealth and took some severe measures to make sure that, although comfortable, I should never be rich. I was not nearly so aware of the dangers of success, the subtle corrosion of character, the unconscious changing of values, and the secret monstrous growth of a vastly inflated idea of myself seeped slowly into me. Vaguely, I was aware of this. And like some frightful parody of St. Augustine, I prayed, Lord, make me humble, but not yet. I can still savor the sweet and gorgeous taste of it all, the warm admiration, the sense of power, of overwhelming ability, of boundless energy, and never-failing enthusiasm. It is, a very, it, is very, it, it is very plain to me now why my one-man kingdom of power and glory had to stop. Okay, th- that was profound to read, Steve, because, uh, I mean, the positives that he described to the degree of, of success that I personally have achieved, I'm very grateful for it and for what it has provided. I appreciate making an abundance of money. I'm immensely grateful to have influence with others and, and matter to people's lives. I'm thrilled to work in my giftings and talents, and yet I still desire and feel called to more. I want to develop and, and create more things, see new opportunities happen. But then I have witnessed people, absolutely men especially, who have achieved very high levels of success, and it has taken its toll on their character, their health, their relationship. So it seems very difficult to withstand power and acclaim and and not being in need of needing anything from anyone. But to what J.B. Phillips wrote there, he had to stop. I mean, what does that mean? Because that doesn't sound fun either. I don't want to stop. I don't want to go live a pauper's life. I don't want to live in a monastery, maybe for a time, but then I want to get out and I still feel called to these achievements. That feels kind of scary and unattractive. Well, I think what what does it mean to stop? That's a great question. What did J.P. Phillips do? I mean, he didn't stop everything. He became wildly successful. His books are still selling by the hundreds of thousands across the world today. I just looked at one of his books this morning, Your God is Too Small. That's his best-selling book. But stopping in the 21st century is like becoming aware. It's waking up. It's a wake-up call that there is a better way to live than all this frantic busyness, this fast-track, fifth-gear, high-octane living that we're doing, there is a richer and more satisfying way to live. And that's where the liquor of our success has intoxicated us because we're not thinking about it. We're not reflecting on these things. We're just swallowing it. We're just going. We're just putting the pedal to the metal without examining the cost. And that's what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. He made him stop. Mm-hmm. And in that scenario and in that story, as Mark describes it, uh, the rich young ruler went away and he was sad. And I think many, many leaders, I work with thousands of leaders all over the world, have an inner sadness that is beginning to come to the surface, that they are more and more ready to be able to talk about. And that sadness can look like distance and space with the intimacy in their with their wife, with their spouse. It can look like emotional absentee father where we're sprinkling father dust on our children and zooming in and just kind of coating them with the father dust like in the P- Peter Pan story. And thinking that that is fathering, thinking that that is what it takes to be a father, thinking that that's what it takes to be a mother. We can't do it all. We can't 
really do all of this fifth gear high octane living because there is this inner price that we're paying and it is a troublesome, sleepless, anxiety-filled kind of living that many, many leaders, not every leader, but many leader is, leaders are lying awake in their bed at two in the morning thinking, is this my life? Isn't there more to this? I sit with these leaders weekend and week out, and I constantly hear in the private conversations. Now, maybe these aren't boardroom conversations. These aren't theater room conversations. But in the private conversations, when a leader feels safe and they begin to unravel what is really going on inside, it is anxiety, it is burnout, it is a perpetual state of exhaustion that says, I can't keep doing this. Okay, so bring it down. So here you are meeting with or talking so often about these C-level uh, execs and biz own, business owners and mega church pastors. But I know from you and your work that this is just as prevalent amongst the culture everywhere, the middle management, that you know, leaders of all degrees and varying types and socioeconomic levels that uh, we're all doing it. We're, we're all doing this. And, and so bring it down so that it's not discounted from, well, that's the million dollar makers. How about the guy who's making 75 grand? He's working a good job and he's burning it at all ends. Oh, no, this is because we're human. We have this propensity to find our significance in our work. So a school teacher can become a workaholic. A high school um, basketball coach can just blow it out by giving and giving and giving without understanding our limits. What are our human limitations that we have before we frazzle, before we burn up, before we burn out? Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best. Air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers 
and buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Uh, it can be a small business owner. It's it's anyone that hasn't really figured out who they are and what gives them significance in this life. We learn our significance, most of us, through our work, especially mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. And this is related to kind of in the Bible, the story when God tells Adam because of he blew it, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. And so that that kind of curse became an inner fascination, an inner hunger for men and women to find their significance by their work. I am what I do. Mm-hmm. That becomes the greatest lie that has ever infected the human heart to say that you are what you do. You're not what you do. And you are a human being. There's more to you than what the door plate shows on your door. You are a human being. You have a soul. You have longings and passions and desires. You have yearnings. You have wounds from your story. Maybe we need to look at what those are. And so what we do with leaders is just like when you're walking on a trail out here in Colorado and you come across an interesting rock, you pick it up and you look under it. Oh, what's under that? It might be some roly polies. It might be a spider, but we're not taking the time to look under the rocks of our success. We're just building and building and building without looking under what is there. Is this, is this after my integrity? Can I do all of this? What am I going to lose What's true? What's really right in this life and in my work? Okay, I want to hit some of those pieces, though I do want to, just from a big uh, 10,000-foot level, hit on something in regards to ministry and, and even just personal faith. So after my wife, my best friend on the planet, is, as you know, Dr. Randy James, um, he's one of the most devout, righteous-seeking people that I know. He seeks to truly serve in his work provide for his family, a great concern of his throughout the years in our friendship is the issue of not just aspiration, but he says Christian aspiration. Can I fully devote myself to the Lord's work, to serving people, to being altruistic in my work, and also desire to succeed in work, succeed, have the title, have the finances, have the things, the rewards that go along with it. And I know that he and many people in a ministry world, especially, that's that's a significant issue. How do you see that playing out in the work that you do? Because I know a lot of people, he has, he has that concern. Can I have Christian aspiration? Can I do it healthfully? Well, of course we can have aspiration and we can have ambition. Uh, as we're talking here today, you know, the, the Olympic athletes are down in Rio working. They aspired. They had ambition. Ambition is not the issue. The issue is unbridled ambition, unchecked ambition, unreflected upon ambition. 
It's not just to say you can achieve and aspire and do everything. It's like, what are the motives here? What are the motives to amass fortune? What are the motives to amass power? What are the, um, what are your, what is your interior motivation that we need to look at here? And is it clean? Is it checked? Have you, have you examined it? That's the issue, Kevin, that people are living their life right out of college, getting their jobs, putting the gear into fifth gear without doing inner, any inner work. That's why I called the book Inside Job, The Work Within the Work. It's not just our work. This is the big conundrum. This is what business schools, this is what graduate schools are not equipping business leaders to do, and that's their inside job. We're seeing it right now in politics. We see it right now in the church. We see it right now in business where the ethical fabric of our country is unraveling and frayed. We don't know what true north is. We are misinformed about it. We just think that it's unbridled ambition. And unbridled ambition builds a kingdom, but is it your kingdom? Is it God's kingdom? That's where the action is. That's where the soul needs to struggle and wrestle. And some of us have just swallowed the liquor of success without examining what the cost is. That's doing the work within the work. Yeah, you give me the, the, the word picture that comes into my head is a tree growing quickly, mightily, uh, tall, it has no roots, and at some point, wind's just going to knock it over. Well, we have that right here in Colorado. My favorite trail was closed for six months because all these trees um, fell over because they had no root structure, and the trail was closed. And this is what happens to men and women when there is no root structure in their business practices, in the way they treat people, in the dignity of human relationships, the dignity of the office to respect people, to be kind to people. We have swallowed the liquor that makes us be brutal, that makes us really treat people worse than animals, and we call that the Christian life, and that's not the Christian life. Hey, I want to thank a sponsor of today's show, Earth Class Mail. They move your snail mail to the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrate with the tools and services you use Every day. It's crazy. We've moved everything we do for business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit electronic checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get a real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. So you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your front door if you run your business from home. Earth Class Mail, it's a great solution, perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit earthclassmail.com slash Ziggler. You'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. So again, that's earthclassmail.com slash Ziggler. So you were just talking about mentioning kids coming out of school and they, they aren't taught any of these roots in essence. Now our audience here is a pretty, pretty mature, uh, audience. We've got, uh, I think our average age is probably around 40 or so. So a lot of people they're they're past that they're already in it. So they're hearing this. And as you talked about in your analogy of being on the trail, looking under the rocks, to me, it sounds like, okay, we need to audit our lives. 
But I'm guessing that our ability to do that by ourselves, in and of ourselves, is pretty limited. Oh, I don't think we can do it by ourselves. We need each other. We have to, the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. And that's where we need to have these ongoing, sometimes brutally honest conversations, courageous conversations. I love the word courageous because it's rooted in the word, in the French word, liqueur, which means the heart. And these are heartfelt conversations that businessmen and women need to have. And this is where I get upset with the modern church because we can't have these conversations in the church. We're so busy studying the book of Ephesians or the book of Romans that we can't have conversation about where the action is, Kevin, about where you're working and how you're working and how many hours you're working. This is... This is a crisis in our country. It's a crisis in this world. And because we're not paying attention to our inner life, we're going to hit a dead end. And many, many leaders are. Day in and day out, business, half of the people I work with are business leaders. The other half are ministry leaders. And it's the same. Sadly, there's no difference between mega pastors and mega business owners. It's the human heart that is at the issue, and we have to fight for our heart. In Proverbs, the wisest man and the richest man that ever lived said, the most important thing that we can do is to guard our heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from your heart flows all of life. That's the challenge for business leaders and ministry leaders, to learn how to guard the heart. So to what you just went through, it's, and I know you talk about this term in your book of stewardship, uh, but let's talk about the church. I mean, obviously we could say the same thing in business, but church specifically is, is an acute place where, I mean, generally as a culture, we don't talk about the inner uh, parts of our finances. You don't know how much money I make. You don't know how I spend my money. Obviously you can see some of that and see if I'm driving a Porsche or a 1999 gold suburban, which is actually outside right now. Uh, and you know, makes, that's your wife's car, isn't it? Absolutely. Mine's a, a Lamborghini. The BMW. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or a 1984 Jeep. Um, so, but stupid financial, we talk about that some, uh, now again, back to our friend, Randy, our, our doc friend, he talks about why don't we never talk about our health and stewardship for what we are eating and what we, if we're moving or not, how we're treating our body, treating this temple, but you're going into, um, not even another path. I mean, you're, you're an overall stewardship. How am I investing my life? I mean, that's a big, yeah, we don't, nobody talks about that. Well, you, uh, we don't talk about that. I've never had anybody really sit down face to face and even ask leading questions into the stewardship of my life. And you're telling us what the consequences of not doing that are, but this is, this feels like uncharted territory. It is uncharted because the church has hijacked the word stewardship to only allow us to think of that in terms of money Mm. and giving money to the church. But stewardship in the original language, means manager. And so most of us are not, we don't know how to be managers of our soul. We don't know how to manage our time. We are infatuated with balancing our life. And the big word that has dominated American work culture since the 1950s is our fetish to try to balance our life. Well, it's just so interesting that that word balance isn't even in the Bible. We're supposed 
to steward our life. And to steward our life gives you a whole different paradigm of how you go about life. And that's when I had become drunk in my career, Kevin, uh, at the zenith of my career. I didn't even know about this. I just thought, man, I'm doing it right. We're living. I've got four blonde head kids. Everything's cooking great. I didn't know I was imploding. That's why in the book, Inside Job, I I based the whole book on a small passage in mm-hmm. the book of Second Peter. Mm-hmm. And Peter was a great leader. He was a small business owner. And he met Jesus one day fishing and everything changed for him. And then he became a manager, the leader of the New Testament church. So he went from leading business to leading people. And in that chapter, Second Peter chapter 1, he says five times, Kevin, five times, don't forget this. Don't forget this. Remember this. And that's the issue that I'm discovering in the 21st century is that we're, we've forgotten some of these basic things of what we're talking about today. We have forgotten character. We have forgotten stewarding our soul or this other concept that I talk about in the book, marshalling our energy, where we can learn how to live within our limits and think that we don't have 110% to give. We hear that all the time in sports and in business. We have 100% to give. We can't give what we don't have. And that's really facing the man or the woman in the mirror and doing that hard work to just say, I'm out of control. I've been living like there were no limits. I'm blowing out an adrenal gland. I'm blowing out my family. I'm leaving gaps everywhere I go. There is carnage behind the trail of success that I've been hiking, and it's going to catch up with me. And that's what carnage does. It always catches up. I want to, from a tangible aspect, hit back on your talking about balance because I had pulled that right out of the book. Um, you talk specifically about exposing the myth of balance and instead embracing the principle of rhythm. And then you go further to state the rhythm established by God. I want you, I'd never heard it in that term. I mean, I think so many of us are enmeshed in the cultural norms. We don't know any better that when you say a rhythm established by God, I draw a blank. Tell me about it. And that makes me upset that you draw a blank. Okay. I mean, we all draw a blank. And yeah. everywhere I go, people are just saying, what? I've never heard of this. And I just want to say, where are the pastors? Where are the real preachers here that have studied the Hebrew and studied the Greek? It's just like we all have to have a wake-up call. But rhythm is established from the beginning of time. The rhythm of life that God established goes like this, 6-1, six, 6-1, one, six, one, six, one, six days of work, one day of ceasing. And in the book, I talk about what the concept of Sabbath means, Mm -hmm. the Hebrew word Shabbat. It doesn't mean Sunday. It means to cease. Every six days, we need to cease. We should cease. The body needs to cease. The soul needs to cease. My mind needs to come down off the steroid of work. I need to come down. I need to do what the Quakers said when they said, "'Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free, tis a gift to come down. And that's the issue. When I work with leaders just like you, Kevin, and just like another mega pastor or a small pastor, it's just like, what in the world are you talking about? I went to school, I've never heard of it. And I just said, well, let's walk through. Mm -hmm. Let's walk through the Bible. And I show them time and time again 
that God set up this way for rhythm. And the boy Jesus, when he was a 12-year-old boy, the age of your son and daughters, Kevin, and many of our listeners here today, he lived in rhythm. He lived in a 6-1 rhythm. Joseph quit making furniture. That sun would go down. His hand came off the plow. His tools would be laid down. And he'd look at Jesus, maybe with a wink. He said, let's get out of here. Let's go. And Jesus had Joseph. Jesus had his father. Jesus had his mother. He didn't have the back of their head waving goodbye. I've got to go. And then there wasn't, of course, this whole technology thing. We've become so blurred that we are always on and always available that that creates a blur between the rhythm of our work. So we're working at our work. We're working at our home. We tell our spouse, oh, I'm just going to check the email, but we're sucked into our email. We're sucked into the internet two or three hours later. It's 10 o'clock. We go to bed. We're checking, doing our Facebook. We're updating that. She's got her laptop on her chest. He's got his laptop on his chest. The glow of the MacBook has replace the candle in the bedroom. Something is wrong. We've forgotten rhythm. We've forgotten that we need to be sustained. To live a resilient life, you can't live in fifth gear all the time. You have to come back to neutral. And most leaders that I know, Kevin, most men and women that work with us at Potter's Inn have stripped second and third and fourth gear. There is reverse and there is fifth gear. There is no in-between. And because there's no in-between, we're blowing it. We're blowing out and we're burning up and we're imploding. So I'm going to, this is going to be uh, a simplistic question, too, too simplistic. I mean, you wrote a book, so folks, go get the book. Um, but for our time allotted here, in just looking at some things to grasp onto, so you talked about six days and cease. Okay, I, I can understand that anybody from a, a church background or mostly in our co- culture knows the concept of that. I, as a guy who is a, a Christian guy, understand the calling of that. Of course, we have some denominations where that—that's uh, you know, especially in the past where that was law. You do not work. You do not lift a finger. You don't even play on sure. on Sunday. Obviously, you're not saying that six days and cease. But I doubt that you, I, I know you're also not talking about it. It's as simplistic as, uh, as it's that simplistic and that confined to just, okay, six days of work. If you take that one day off and just Sabbath and not do anything, that that's going to, that that's the end all right there. What are some other ways of ceasing that we can grasp that's on? such to? a great question because most leaders don't know how to cease. We only know how to be on. We get A pluses for being on. We don't know what to do to bring us life. That's the Sabbath question. The Sabbath question is, what gives me life? On the Sabbath, on your day off, go do life. Go do what would bring you alive. And for us, it means not being with people, suck, life-sucking friends. There are some people that suck the life out of us, and then there are some people that pour life into us. And so that's distinguishing my work from my fun is when I'm off, I want to be with somebody that can make me laugh. I don't want to be with somebody that's going to hook up a hose and make me work and make me listen to their problems or listen to their woes. When I'm off, I want to laugh. I want a belly laugh. I want to lay down on the floor and roll. I want to have a long lingering dinner 
with Gwen, my wife, or with some good friends. We've already planned our Sabbath dinner for this coming week, which is coming up in a couple of days. I emailed some people and I said, hey, we want you to come because they are the people that as we sit there on our deck, as we're flipping hamburgers or flipping salmon or whatever we're going to have, it will be life and we will raise up the chalice of our life to each other and we will toast each other and we will cheer each other. The problem is, Kevin, we're working all the time. We're working angles and we're working deals and our minds never get to come down. There needs to be one time, one day, one season in our life that we can really come down and take off all of the uniforms, all of the apparel, all of the ties, and really enter the pleasure of being alive. Okay, I want to drill down more into that. And this is, uh, this is the same question I would ask if we were over here at the sushi place, you and me talking about this. And so I'm selfishly talking about my own life. It's just that 30,000 people are going to listen to this. So hopefully it'll be relevant to them as well. Because when you talk about that, so if I say, okay, I'm not working and I can do that. I can put the laptop away. I can put the cell phone or the, the smartphone away. I can do that. I can be at home. I am aware. And I've been grappling with this for a couple years now, grappling, not fixing well, but grappling with that propensity to, well, cause you say give life. So I'm, I want to define that a little bit because I could say, you know, at home, man, I can, I can do some woodwork stuff and build something. And to some degree it gives me life. But then what my wife will talk about is honey, you're running around, you're running from the barn to the house and you're building this thing. What's, what's the hurry for one. And at the end of the day, you had fun doing that, but you're tired. It's work that you did just like the work. It's a different type. Okay. There's validity in that. And, and obviously the point is not building. Maybe somebody can do that. And it is a, well, the, the thought that came to mind is there are some things that I can do for relief, temporary relief. And that that's something there are some things. And I tend to gravitate personally towards inspiration. I will go after that. And it usually inspires me to do but what I hear you saying in my, in my mind, I, I thought of renewal. It, what gives me life? What gives me renewal? And I've been struggling with that some. And when you say make a list right now, what gives you? I have to, I have to think. And I, and I know you're not putting a cookie cutter methodology in terms on this. This is right. This is wrong. It's going to differ. But what are some of the umbrellas over that? that this is... This is not giving you life. It may, you may think it is, is, is a full day of watching sports and eating Cheetos. Can that give life or or not? Is the right friends giving life or not? Is the right activities giving life or not? Play with us in that a little bit. Another great question. That's where the action is. That's where husbands and wives, spouses, friends have to get together because what brings you life may not be what brings me life. Mm -hmm. Gwen and I have to navigate our Sabbath. We have to navigate and really negotiate our Sabbath. Like you go do that and I'll go do this. And then at four o'clock, let's hook up and have dinner together. So it's often, and I think in our world today, there's nothing wrong. We negotiate at business. We have to negotiate how to do this. But Kevin, the first platform to build is your question. And that is the question, what gives you life? What is life? And for many high-octane people, for many people that have been drinking the liquor of busyness and success, they don't know except their work. And then they say, well, that's my – but if you – 
maybe what we have become are slaves to our work, like in, in old Egypt where we read again in the Bible, go make more bricks but with less straw. This is so much of today's economy that we're, we just feel like we're enslaved to a taskmaster, and we don't even know it. Even back in those days, when the Egyptian, when the Jewish children of Israel were being led into freedom, they begged to go back. Uh-huh. They didn't even know what life was. And many leaders, we, we haven't taken the time to reflect. We've just signed up. We've just signed up 21 right out of college or some of us right out of high school. We've never looked back. And we're calling it a life. Now, some people actually can navigate this quite well. And I've seen people and I've talked to them and I've looked looked closely under the hood of their soul to see if they're telling me the truth. But the far vast majority of us really need to do our inside job and really do some thinking and some reflecting about what brings us life, what makes character, what is success. That's the great question, I think, just like your podcast here and so many books, helping people redefine success because we may not really know. Mm-hmm. And it, it needs to be thought about more than we're thinking about it rather than uh, just swallowing this and hook, line, and sinker and then going after it until we die. Well, in, in coming from the Ziegler-esque platform that we are on here, of course, one of his primary things were goals. And now I grew up with that of the goals are the aspiring to success. But if my goal is understanding what is success, like you said, am I climbing a ladder that when I get to the top, I realize that's not the ladder I wanted you know, to climb. And in this, you're bringing me to think on just, just heart issues. What is a question I've been asking a lot is what is peace? Where has my peace gone? I have every reason to have joy. I have every reason to feel wealthy. I have every reason to, uh, to be happy even in that. And yet when I find myself not being at peace, obviously something is awry. And in this sense, you know, as I'm looking at then the tangible things that have happened, I've realized as of late that I've kind of forgotten how to play. I don't know how to rest well. I, I, I'm very uncomfortable trying to take a nap. I feel so disoriented that I've, I've kind of lost that. I don't gravitate towards play. And I've started some little habits of doing that. Let's do game night as a family. Let's watch. You talked about laughing. It's not in my DNA to go get a comedy movie. It just doesn't resonate. I'm, I'm gonna, we're going to watch Braveheart, something that it's powerful. We're going to talk about it afterwards. And yet... What fun it is to laugh. I, oh, yeah. I love I love this question and I love how you're you're wrestling with it. I wrestle with you, I'm your brother. Kevin, peace is an inside job. Mm. Contentment is an inside job. Happiness mm. is an inside job. We we have equated Peace, happiness, and satisfaction with position, power, status in life. All the exterior markers of success. And those of us that have tasted some success can all 100% agree that that is not what brings a man or a woman peace. Peace in the Hebrew, that great word is shalom. And in the literal sense of shalom, it means your well-being. 
That's what peace means. It means all the facets of your soul, your relational soul, with your children, with your wife, with your friends, a sense of well-being. Is it good with you? Is it good with you? Just like at my church that Gwen and I have started attending, we're given an opportunity every Sunday, just what the pastor says to us, pass the peace. And we stand up and we I just shake a guy's hand, I don't know, and it's the peace of Christ. We are living in such a day and such a fragileness and such a thinness to our world, politically, economically, and spiritually, that uh, we don't know what peace is. And that's why I love your question. And that is the question that is worth this conversation, is worth listeners pulling over, taking some notes, buying this book, Inside Job, and saying, hey, let's read this together. Mm -hmm. Let's listen to the podcast together. Let's rethink where the trajectory of our lives is taking us. Because every human being wants peace. Every person wants peace. And parents want mothers that are raising preschool children and one is two and one is four and one is eight. She wants peace. There needs to be some time in her day, some time in her week where she could drink from the chalice of peace and experience the goodness of life and the goodness of faith and the goodness of community. We we need to really think, and this is where in the last couple chapters of Inside Job, the book we're talking about today, leads you into this, this this discussion, this exploration of different categories of how to find peace. And your doctor, Randy, is my doctor. And he and I have worked for two and a half years on my own understanding of my body and the peace I want with my body. I've driven my body hard, and I haven't been a good friend to my body in the chase of success and the aspirations. And now... Some things have caught up, and I want to pay greater attention. I couldn't do that by myself. I thought a triglyceride was a people group that hated the Jews. But through our friendship with Randy, I'm learning there's there's some people groups in me that I need to look at, I need to deal with, I need to have peace with. And it's just like learning this word, Kevin, that I'm learning to offer myself, and that's the word of self-compassion. Many leaders are more compassionate on their staff and on their friends than they are on themselves. I find this time and time again with missionaries and with pastors. We don't know how to receive self-compassion. We think it's stupid. It's anti-Jesus. Is This is supposed to be sacrifice. We're supposed to burn out. We're supposed to give our all. And in the book, there's a whole chapter on understanding your limits, how to say no in order to say yes. And it's just like, boy, that's something we need to be reading. I, and that's exactly what I wanted to hit on next, though. You you talked about, you know, some of us need to pull over right now and, and do some work. I do love a tangible action and uh, an exercise. And, and folks, listen, I, I think he just gave us one. So when you say, well, first off, you said, you know, everyone desires peace. I would say, gosh, intellectually, when you say that, of course I do. Have I ever you said peace and contentment and happiness is an inside job. When have I, well, I'll, I'll just, we don't have to get theoretical here. I'm sitting right here. I have not, Steve, put those in front of me to say, Kevin, how do I achieve peace and contentment and happiness? What are the things that I am doing to pursue those goals? I have never 
done that. Now, if you ask me if I want those things, I would say, yeah, of course I do. If you ask me, do I have those? That's what's causing me to pause lately. And because the biggest question or, or response I have to it is there's no reason I shouldn't have those. What the heck is wrong? And we're talking about when have I ever made those a priority? I have not. I'm going to go build a barn, build a business, build a life, build a child, build a, I'm going to do those, but, but self-compassion, self-focus on me to what does. And cause then the next statement that, or the, the statement you said prior to that, I cannot give what I don't have. Well, crap. Yeah. Crap. Send me an invoice for the counseling session, Steve. This is not a counseling session. We're having a friendship discussion and, um, there's a big difference even in that, but you know, what, what I try to coach people. And I think a lot of my work with people actually is that of a coach is to say, how can you improve in the peace department? 25%. I mean, we're not talking going to a hundred percent. I'm just saying an improvement, 25% improvement, Kevin is moving from the letter D to the letter B on the grade yeah. scale. And so if you're leveling out at a D in peace, contentment, and satisfaction and joy, a 25% improvement brings you up to a B. I think, actually, in all honesty, it's kind of a myth to think people get A pluses in the peace, contentment, and satisfaction. I work with a lot of people that um, say publicly they are, and then privately I hear their war stories, I hear their laments. It's just like B in the academic world is good and a B plus is very good. And that I think is a realistic goal for us to say is that to sit down with your spouse tonight, this weekend, what would it be like for us to amp up 25% in the next six months and try to have 25% more happiness in our home? You know, when I say that, it's just like, that sounds Chinese. That sounds something different that I don't speak that language. That's our challenge. I think that's the challenge is that we're confused. And to think that, you know, I would love to see graduate courses. I would love to see church Sunday schools talk about what is contentment. This is the action. This is what we need to be talking about. This is what sermons need to be about and to understand how to navigate our life. You know, there's a verse in the Bible, it says, Paul says, watch our doctrine and life closely. I think churches, by and large, do great on watching their doctrine, perhaps way too much. But helping somebody watch your life, Kevin, that's what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd like to call your pastor up right here up the road and say, look, every man in your church is like Kevin. Every woman is like Terry, every woman is like Gwen. Every woman is like Dustin and Natalie. And man, it's just like we need to have these life-on-life help here. And that's where I feel like the book Inside Job, it's a practical manual Mm -hmm. to help somebody rethink the trajectory of their life because we've lost our way. Well, you're giving me such new insights, new perspectives on here, but to the degree of talking to the church, that's been a, uh, it's been a sore spot for years as I see pastors are so prone to stand up to espouse some great ideal and to say, now let's go, let's all of us go out and, and take care of the world with these ideals. And I'm looking at the crowd, people that I know I'm watching their eyes and going, these folks are 
broken. They're not going anywhere and helping anybody. They are, it's, this is, this is broken. We, we need to fix them first. Listen, I could not agree more. The people that really need to be saved are the people in the church. Um, that might sound jolting. I know the world is lost, but people, you know, Jesus needs to save us for more than just our sins. He needs to save us from our misunderstanding, our misinformation that we've gathered. And some of our learning needs to be unlearned. And some of my sins, man, they were taken care of when I became a Christian, when I got baptized. And I'm happy. But there are deep parts of my heart in the recesses of the fourth dark quadrant of my heart that need the light. And this is what the poet Mary Oliver says. The heart has many dungeons. Bring the light. Bring the light. The heart has many dungeons. Bring the light. And Kevin, this conversation is light. It's like, man, you're jazzed. I'm jazzed. I'm ready. You and I, I could go ride with you on a mountain trail. I'm so pumped up in talking to you about this subject. Because this is where the action is. This is where we live. It's not just in reading our stock reports and seeing what the foreign mar- markets are going to do. It's like, am I, am I good with myself? Is God good with me? We need to, there's so much thinking here that we just need to stop and kind of get off the hamster wheel and think about. And Because maybe we're on the wrong hamster wheel. Maybe we are climbing the wrong it's, uh, yeah. How, uh, uh, providential that this, my wife and I need to listen to this show. We need to listen to that. Cause that's where we're at right now. We've got to look at these things, the peace, the happiness, the contentment, because we're in a place, uh, very, as you said, applauded by the church of pouring out, you pour out and you pour out and you pour. Well, so on that, uh, so I, that was my next point. Chapter eight, page 122. Um, the leader's limits is what you titled it. Say no in order to say yes. And you do, you know, the, you know, uh, the high octane life is what you call it. You know, the type of personality, you know, that I am one of those as well. Uh, So I wanted to pull out. So three nights ago, you and I were texting back and forth at about 11 PM. And, uh, you said, uh, go to bed, (laughs) I bet you're watching Olympics. And I said, no, I'm just back from a church parking lot, picking up my family along with a new little a little girl who is joining our family. Um, and right now at that moment, my wife is upstairs trying to console this scared little girl, uh, in a strange new place. And you said, Lord have mercy, read the chapter on understanding your limits. My internal wiring, Steve, and I come from it with gratitude, uh, an achieving family. My dad and mom taught me to work. They taught me, they helped me to aspire. I'm grateful for that. But with that, I got the perspective. I'm not going to blame it on them of no limits, uh, going into professional cycling. I mean, you don't, you cycling specifically, you know, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it right now, but you take any other sport cycling differs. There's a pack, there's a pack and there's a draft the Olympic, uh, road race just happened. And there's a draft. You're in that group. You're in that draft. They're going 30% more uh, faster or so than you could do that on your own. If you drop out of that pack, drop out of that draft, you're probably shot. So if you feel like you're at 100%, sorry, you better hit 100%. I mean, I patterned my life after this. And here you are saying no limits, no boundaries. Uh, And that was my concept is to do, even from a personal 
worth sampling. You do more than the next person. Just in your own, my own measuring card, my own measuring stick, you do more than the next person. And in looking, I mentioned this earlier, if I'm looking to fuel myself, I don't go to those words, peace, contentment, happiness. I go to how do I inspire myself to get more out? And I've clambered for inspiration. Admittedly, I've clambered for that to make me go the extra mile. So all that is a claim, not, uh, uh, I mean, it's not a claim. It's an admission. It's not a, I am what I am. I, I, it's not working. There's lots of places that are showing me that is not working. That's a, is this the going back to you? It's, it's, that's the liquor. That's the drug. That's a, but it's folly. It's my wiring. I, I'm going to have to rewire. Some of us are hardwired. I'm hardwired. And I, knowing you, I think you're hardwired. Many leaders are hardwired and it's for our hardwiring that we have justified that this is the way it is. I just watched the Olympics too. And I saw Michael Phelps, big swimming partner that won with him and lost last night to Michael. He said, I've got to take time off. I have paid a high price to be here and I've got to take time off. He was saying, that's saying limits. A Sabbath is a limit. A Sabbath is an understanding that we we are not machines. You can live this way when you're, I've got four sons. They're all in their 20s and 30s, and I watch them. And I watch them try to grapple with their limits, and they're working hard. Two of them are soldiers and special forces and Green Berets. One is being deployed tonight. And so, you know, I called him right before I came to talk with you, Kevin, about what's this going to be like with you living so fast, like this moving in in, uh, harm's way to understand your limits. What, what can you do? What we have to do is even in the Bible, this is where I think modern people have forgotten the ancient truths that are in the Bible. Paul, the writer of most of the new Testament had a limit. He said, God's opened a door for me, but I'm not going to go through this open door. Most of us think if it's an open door, I'm going. If there's an opportunity, I'm going to take it. If there's a hill to charge, let's go charge it. But the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, said, there's an open door of opportunity, and I'm not going to go through it. And he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I'm not going to go through it because I had no peace of mind. And I love Paul. Sometimes I struggle with Paul when he says things that are just way out of reach. But right there, he said, there's an open door and I'm not going to go through it because he needed to be with his friend Titus. And later on, he laments in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians where he says, man, there were fears within. It was hard without. I had no peace of mind until my friend Titus came. And Kevin, this is kind of what you do. And I'm... I've been a part of this with you is that we have a Titus time. There's a time at Starbucks where we come together and share our stories and share our hearts and share our victories and dab each other's wounds up when we've gotten them from our kids or at work. We have to understand our limit. No car can be in fifth gear. No thoroughbred horse can run the Kentucky Derby day after day, week after week. No, there's a limit. And it's us as humans. I've got a dog named Laz. I took him hiking yesterday on my day off and he has a limit. He came home last night. He just collapsed on the floor. He 
could barely move. Even animals know their limits. But we as human, this is part of our deal. We'll shake our fists at our doctors. We'll say, not me. That's not going to happen. I can go on. I can live thin in the thinness of my soul. I can live in fifth gear, and it's not going to catch up. But it does catch up. And the thing is, what we say, what I say, is caring for our soul, Kevin, is really preventative medicine. It's taking care of our whole being. Our doctor, Randy's taking care of our body, but we can learn to be the physician of our own soul by being doing preventative things. And one of them is understanding our limits, living in a healthy rhythm, and understanding how you foster and develop peace, contentment, and satisfaction. Okay, that healthy rhythm thing I want to ask on. Though it's interesting when you talk about you know, we can't be in fifth gear all the time. We can't have a racehorse do a, 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 a race, do the Kentucky Derby every day. I have, so being my, my history of a past pro cyclist during the Lance Armstrong, uh, some of his early times at least, and I've had people you know, say, hey, ask me what I thought about that. What do I think is a solution to that? I said, honestly, I think the solution is you don't have the Tour de France, which is never going to happen because it's 21 days of a marathon. Runners don't do that. They do a marathon and then they're not going to do another one, a competitive one for a month, three months. Maybe they'll do a couple a year that they're going to peak for. You can't do that. For some reason, cycling decided to do that. And what did it result in? They can't get away from performance enhancing, enhancing drugs. I mean, it's, it's impossible to do hundred plus miles in the Alps, whatever, every single day. It's, it's stupid. And as long as they do that, they're going to drug it. Cause it's, it's by the end, everybody would be doing two miles an hour on day 21. Well, I'm not a cyclist, but that's what everybody in the church does. They're, they're uh-huh. running their own tour de France. They're on their own stimulants. They're on their own drugs of choice. Yeah. They may not be illegal, but they could be dark. There's, there's so many ways we're self-medicating and not all with just chemicals, uh, with with us. And so we need to really think and we need to watch each other. We need to ask questions of each other. Uh, we need to be bold and courageous because we're humans. Let me come to a word. And I use this. So talking about Ziegler and goals is a primary term. I do a lot of times when we're talking on that, where I will say in these shows, hey, goals or whatever it is that does it for you. Is it is it dreams, aspirations, desires, uh, whatever, because some people there's baggage around the term goals for whatever reason. So in this, when you talk about having limits, the admission from me is when the word limits is used in this context, I naturally inherently think of weakness and selfishness, putting limits on myself in a relationship is selfish, putting limits on myself in any other context of life is weak. So as I'm writing and thinking through, as we're, as we're doing the show right now, I hear you and I'm putting my own terminology. What's a palatable way for Kevin to take these on is these are boundaries that are, are, are health, strength, and wisdom to have these boundaries. Is, is it a limit? Could you do more? Yes, but it would be against the, your best health. It would, it would be weakness to go do that thing. It would be unwise to go do that thing and to limit yourself, to pour yourself out, to deplete yourself that much. I mean, I have to embrace that. And I, I think I can. Yeah. Peter talks about, and I talk about this in the book, when Peter talks about a virtue um, of self-control. And self-control is a boundary word. It means literally to have self-control 
means to marshal your energies wisely. That's what self-control is. So the person that's trying to exercise self-control when there's 22 bags of double stuffed Oreos, he's got to marshal his energies wisely. The person that's an alcoholic and there's liquor everywhere in the restaurant, he's got to marshal his energies wisely. To the successful businessman and businesswoman, it's marshalling your energies wisely because you do not have 110%. To marshal your energies wisely, this is what happened to Gwen and me, Kevin, in our marriage. I gave uh, I gave what I thought was 110% to my work, and I gave Gwen the leftovers. I wasn't marshalling my energies wisely. I didn't even know I did. I thought the leftovers were enough. I thought the father dust was enough, but it's not enough. My children needed my heart. They needed my face. They needed my voice. Gwen needed my touch. She needed my tenderness. She just didn't need the act of sex. She needed intimacy with me. And I wasn't marshalling my energies wisely. We hit a wall. Our marriage came to to a stop. The wheels of our bus came off. And we tell people all over the world when we speak and we talk confidentially, we gave the best years of our life to our work and the leftovers to each other. We did not know what that self-control was a virtue. And when I saw self-control, I just thought, well, that's for the alcoholics. That's for the drug addicts. They should be more self-controlled. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with me. I didn't know that I had limits. I was like you. Those are the stories, Kevin, that would be great to dig into is where did we pick up these mm-hmm. flags and carry them that we can do all of this stuff and be limitless in our aspirations? Where did those get stuck into our hearts, into our souls? Because some of those are illusions, not all of them, but some of them. And illusions of life are what get us into trouble because we think life is supposed to be this way. We build an illusion about it, and then we have implosions and collapses in our hearts and in our integrity and in our relationships. Self-control is marshalling energy wisely is a big headline and something I want to ask you about that you in essence are saying when we don't, when we don't marshal our energy wisely, we become depleted. One of the terms that you talk about, chapter 10, is, 10, is it being resilient. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that and deduce from there that we then become depleted. We are not able then to be resilient, and thus we have a fall. As you have worked with so many people, I want to, it's out of my own curiosity in, in, in all reality, to, to ask is there a, what are some, some of the highlighted areas that you see the average high achiever where they deplete themselves too much? They are not marshaling their energies wisely and they fall and they, they fall. They can't get back up. They're not resilient in these areas, these acts in, in life. What are some of the, the top ones? The number one without any question is time sickness. Most successful leaders have a diagnosis I would call time sickness. They're busy, they're always on, and they're always available. And the that triage diagnosis of time sickness just means, in Chinese, the word busyness literally means heart annihilation. A busy person who is 
perpetually busy is annihilating their heart. They're always on. They're always checking. They're always looking. I have a friend and a teammate that told me one time he found out how many, what's the average number of times a person looks at their iPhone. And it was like some ridiculous number. I can't remember right now, but it was like every minute, every minute we're looking at ourselves and always, am I needed? Am I needed? Who's got something? Who's got something? Time sickness is so serious. It's so serious in our day and age. A second one, Kevin, are the three triage questions of Jesus Christ when he said, are you tired? Are you worn out? And are you burned out? On religion. And I think in the ethos of most leaders, there is this inner exhaustion that people have hit a wall and they're pushing, they're going through, they're trying to get through the wall, but they're just hitting their heads time and time again and calling that the abundant life. The exhausted life is not the abundant life. The tired, the Anxiety-filled life is not the abundant life. And that goes back to our question is, what is life? And how does God really want his children to live? I'm a father. You're a father. Who would want their children to live an exhausted life? It's just like, no, no, no. That's not what I have for you. But we need to rethink our image of God to think that God actually wants us to live. I love this, that God wants us to really live and have a rewarding and a deep, deeply rich and satisfying life. That's the God I really want to worship. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I might be preaching. No, that's what you're here for. Uh, that's what you're here for. Busyness is heart annihilation. I, yeah, you've, you've got some leveling statements throughout this. I, 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 have, I have one more specific question. You list in the book, you talk about virtues, you list eight great virtues, but I want to hit it with the same question as I just, or the same perspective as I just did before and say, what virtue do you see a void in? What's the, what's the virtue that bubbles up to the surface as you work with these high achievers? Uh, where, where, what's the virtue void that comes out at the top? Well, at the top of Peter's list, when he lists what the virtues are is, is, is love. The top virtue in life is love. There are three different places in the Bible where Paul and Peter list what the highest qualities of life are. And in all three lists, love is at the top, not success. I mean, that's just like, what? Love? I don't want to sound like Oprah Winfrey because I'm not Oprah Winfrey, uh, but it's just like that needs to be looked at. And that's just like self-love, relationship love between friends. If we're too busy to have friends, we're too busy. What will it be at the end of our life when we're laying on our deathbed and there's no one to be with us except our stock portfolios? Who, who would want that? That means nothing. What means everything is this connection, this sense of love, this sense of being cared for and caring for people. And in our world today, in a world of violence, in a world of ISIS, in a world of terrorism, it's just like we 
we now have just kind of gone bankrupt here to protect ourselves that what where is our love where is it in the workplace these these are basic human things this is what distinguishes us from dogs and animals and pigs and elephants is our ability to love and care we're we're human beings not human doings hmm. and being created in the image of god it means we we need to come back and just, if we're moving so fast that we're not loving, if we're moving so fast, we're not taking care of each other. We're moving too fast. All right. Out of my own self-interest, I, I do have another question. Um, Cause I want to hear you owe your, me a big dinner. I know. I want to hear your answer. When I look at, and I'll be literal with my own life. And I look at my, my finances, my relationships, uh, the, the, the wealth of life overall, when I go home from here with, uh, there'll be 10, I think people at the house tonight that I get to grill salmon for, which I love to do. I like I'll, salmon, Kevin, and I'm available. Are you? Are you yeah, okay. Gwen's out of town. And I have some great new wine as well. And there will be great music and there will be great discussion. So, again, so much wealth. And these are things, and, and even, yeah, the work that I do with, our brother Randy on the health and fitness aspect. And I want to be well and healthy of body and mind and soul and spirit. And I pursue those things. Okay. So I'm, I'm going after this, but when you talk about self-love and I, I write this, I'm looking at it right now. I write healthy self-love. I think if I'm asking myself, what is healthy self love look like? The first thought that comes to mind is what is righteous in my, this is an admission, is, is self-denial. Well, that's what we all think because we've all been to Sunday school, many of us, not all of us, where we're taught it's all about denying yourself. But the greatest commandment, Kevin, that Jesus told us was to love God and to love our neighbor as our self. To love self is to guard our hearts and not become a machine. To love self is to steward our life and manage our life and take care of our bodies. To love myself is to give myself dignity that I am a human being, not a human doing. To love self is to love yourself and to say, you're my friend, you're my companion, I care for you. To love you with that same love, it's so difficult. This is, this is the dilemma of many, many people who are in ministry. They tell everybody else, well, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. But they can't turn back and say, God loves me? No, I've, I'm ridiculous. I'm, a, mm-hmm. I'm just awful. God, I have self-rejection. I have an inner critic that says, you should hate yourself. How could anybody love you? This isn't healthy. The healthy way that we have to learn to live, to care for ourselves, is to value ourselves. And I can hear that. I can hear that. And I can intellectually agree. And yet what those things that you're saying, I know I battle against. So again, in this, I feel like a kid in Sunday school with my understanding level or my engagement in my own life with these terms, with healthy self-love, but give us a layman's terms then that we can take it. 
because you're not talking narcissism, but that's where our heads go. Self, we, we self-denial on the other side is narcissism. And I, I, you're not talking about either of those. I'm definitely not help us reconcile those. I'm not talking about being narcissistic. I'm talking about the way that I see this. Our model for this is none other than Jesus. I don't know of a better model because he took care of himself. Luke tells us he often went away into solitude. He often left people and went into solitude. I just looked like, Oh, why isn't that taught more? Because something happens in solitude. Jesus knew that by his being away, he would be a better man. Mm -hmm. Is that being selfish? Is that being narcissistic? I mean, Jesus did that. So yesterday, I'm taking, this is the end. Being with you is the end of a 48-hour retreat for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm a better man because I went away by myself. And when Gwen comes home, I think she'll see it. I got to tell my friend who's sitting right here with us today that I just, it was an incredible time. I feel much more alive. Mm -hmm. I'm a better person because I took care of myself. Could I have worked? Could I have written? Could I have done this and called this and counseled that person and coached that person? Absolutely. Could I have made more money if I hadn't taken the time off to be on my retreat? But self-love is knowing I'm at my limit. I have to have some time. Because next week for me, a anesthesiologist and his wife are flying in, and I'm going to be their sole physician, and I'm going to be working hard, and I'm going to be rolling up my sleeves, and I'm going to need to have rest. And so I'm trying to trickle charge my inner batteries. I'm trying to love myself enough to trickle charge. And this is another thing that we have to learn is how do you trickle charge in a fast-moving world? Well, this is not going to be the last of our times together on this show. But folks, the website for the book itself is myinsidejob.org. Again, the book's Inside Job, Doing the Work Within the Work, Stephen W. Smith. You can get it there at the site. Of course, you can get it wherever else you may uh, buy books. But go take a look at myinsidejob.org. And we have a big audience here, Steve. They should all go get the book. That's what I'm uh, pitching them for. This will be in the intro to the show as well. You can well. Down, download a sample chapter from that website, okay. myinsidejob.org. Work. And there's also a workbook where you can unpack and do some exercises with a friend, read some things together. Okay. That's available. Gra- that's, I was going to ask about that. Now we've mentioned multiple times his retreat center, Potter's Inn. You can find at pottersin.com. And uh, I have to testify that I spent the majority of yesterday there with our buddy Randy and some staff members. And we walked the prayer trail and uh, what a, a blessed play. You can't help but not be at peace there, um, which I, I know is a point. And folks, you can go, go check that out if that's something where you feel like you need that intense engagement as well. But go uh, plug in with Steve. Go to myinsidejob.org. I think there's a, you can sign up on an email list there as well, Steve. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And I, we send out a newsletter with some in, inspirational articles and some challenging readings once a month that you can get for free. Okay. Or you can move to uh, the high mountains of Colorado and live with Steve like I do and see him and get it face to face. There's stress in the high mountains of Colorado. Yeah, well, that's true. It's still, it follows us around. Thank you, brother, for the time, for the heart, for your devotion to this work and this message and for bringing it to myself and this audience today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a joy to do that.